The New Testament reading is Matthew 12, 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning. And before we, we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord together in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us about you. We thank you for the gospel of Christ Jesus that it proclaims. And Lord, I do pray that all that follows would be faithful to your intentions to this passage, Lord, and that you would use this passage to grow us in grace, Lord, by the efficacy of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we cling more fully. May we rejoice more fully in the truth of Christ Jesus, of who he is, and what he has done for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, as, as per the church tradition, today we're, we're celebrating the church holiday of Epiphany, and, and we're doing so by looking at the story, the, the account of the Magi in Matthew. And we're going to look at this account, we're going to look at this passage under two headings. The God that creates and the God who saves. So let's look at each of those in turn and start with the God that creates. And in this passage, we find some of the most interesting figures in all of Scripture. The ESV, the the Bible version that we read from, it it refers to these men as magi, or sorry, as wise men. But I'm going to call them magi because that's pretty close to what we find in the Greek, magoi. And it's also the case that we're not entirely clear who these figures are. Sometimes they can be put forward as as magicians or astrologers, but we have to be careful here for at least two reasons. The first is that the only background information we're given about these figures is that they're from the East. The second is that any sort of, of divination, whether sorcery or astrology, is strictly forbidden in the law of God. 
So then, what is it that we are to do? Well, the key rule of reading Scripture is that Scripture interprets Scripture. If something is, is unclear in a certain passage, that the first thing to do is, is to see if another passage of Scripture might cast some light on the text at hand. And this reading practice is actually quite helpful here because there are at least two accounts from the Old Testament that help us understand these figures. The first of these we'll look at in our first point, and, and the second one we'll look at in our second point. And the first is the account of Balaam in the book of Numbers. And as we'll see, there's several reasons why Balaam is a very important background figure here. To begin with, Philo of, of Alexandria, the, the Hellenistic Jewish philosopher, he was a contemporary of Matthew, and he actually refers to Balaam as a, as a magus, the singular form of, of magi, when he comments on this Old Testament text. There was some kind of Jewish tradition that understood Balaam as a kind of magi. And what we'll see is that Balaam shows us how the Magi can go wrong. What do we see about Balaam in the book of Numbers? Well, we find that when the people of Israel are wandering through the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt, Balaam is hired by the king of Moab to curse the Israelites. Balaam disobeys the instruction of God, and he accepts this evil offer from the king of Moab, because he's tempted by the riches that are promised to him. But a very surprising thing happens here. Each time Balaam tries to curse the Israelites, what comes out of his mouth instead are blessings for the Israelites. This happens four times, and on the fourth and final blessing, Balaam says something that relates directly to today's passage. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him. But not near, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The Christian tradition has long read this prophecy given against uh, Balaam's own wishes. It's understood as being fulfilled in today's passage. Christ is that star from the house of Jacob. And this star imagery directly connects to the star that the Magi follow to the child Christ. But because this prophecy is fulfilled in today's passage, it's not only about Christ. It's also about the Magi themselves. Balaam also says this just before prophesying about the star. He says, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Balaam seems to be saying this about himself, but strictly speaking, Balaam does not hear the words of God. He only speaks them and then he goes on to disobey them, and that is not a true hearing of the Lord, or sorry, of the word of God. Again, Balaam accepts the offer of Moab against the instruction of God. Even more, Balaam doesn't fall down before the Almighty God, which is, is what we see in that prophecy. So who is it that Balaam is speaking for? Not to get ahead of ourselves here, but, but, but 
I think, I believe he's speaking for the Magi who visit Christ in Matthew 2. As we'll see, it is only by hearing the words of God in Scripture that the Magi are able to find Christ. And when they see the child, they do fall down before him in worship. We'll come back to that later. But for now, consider an illustration. There's a scene in in The Lord of the Rings, both in the books and in the movies, and it it captures, I think, an important dynamic here between Balaam and and the Magi. And I've said this before, but one of my faults, biggest faults as a PCA pastor, is probably not quoting and referencing Lord of the Rings enough. Uh, That's kind of your denominational duty. So I, I hope that I can start to make some remedy on that. But there's this scene if you're familiar with it, where there's three characters, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, and they're wandering through a forest, and they come upon a wizard. And they think that this figure is the evil wizard Saruman. And Saruman, he's the white wizard, which means he's the head of the wizard order, but he's given up on this good responsibility to preserve and to protect the good of Middle-earth, And he's done so to satisfy his own greed. He's become a traitor. And so the three friends, they think that they're in danger, and so they attack this figure. But then they realize that this is not Saruman. It's revealed to them, to their surprise, that it's their good friend Gandalf who they thought had died. Gandalf the Grey has now become Gandalf the White. And now he's the new head of the wizard order. And after his friends explained that they had mistaken him for Saruman, Gandalf replies, Indeed, I am Saruman, one might almost say, Saruman as he should have been. And in the same way, we can imagine the Magi of Matthew 2 saying this, Indeed, I am Balaam, one might almost say, Balaam as he should have been. In today's passage, we find the Magi as they always should have been. Here, we find Magi who are truly wise. And perhaps the best English title for these figures is Wise Men. And what do we see of their wisdom here? The natural world, creation, in this case the star, it leads them to God. And this still happens. This is still the case. This still should happen. When we look at the natural world, when we see God's handiwork, we should recognize God as the good and wise creator. And this star, the star from from today's passage, It's not the only star that proclaims the message of God. All of the stars in the universe continue to do so. The stars continue to tell us that God is. The stars, the entire universe, direct us to God. We see this, for instance, in the findings of modern science. The secular physicist and cosmologist Paul Davies, he's the head of the Beyond Center at Arizona State University. He's not religious, but at the same time, his academic studies have led him to conclude that the universe seemed to, quote, see us coming. In fact, he writes this, that there is, quote, 
broad agreement among physicists and cosmologists that the universe is in several respects fine-tuned for life. You can, you can confirm that perhaps with the physicists in our, our congregation. In speaking of this fine-tuning, Christian apologist Justin Brierley, he writes this about the fundamental forces that hold all of our universe together. He says, the extraordinary precision of these forces shows that the existence of our life-permitting universe is balanced on the most razor-sharp edge of a knife. For instance, if the force of gravity varied from its actual value by just one part in 10 to the 60th power, a one with 60 zeros after it, then life could not exist. If the force were slightly stronger, then matter would collapse. If the force was slightly weaker, the matter would spread out so thinly that no stars, planets, or galaxies could form. Various analogies have been given for the chances of these numbers falling out the way they do by accident. One of my favorites by astrophysicist Michael Turner likens the odds to throwing a dart from one side of the entire universe toward a dartboard on the other side and scoring a bullseye. For his part, celebrity atheist Richard Dawkins even says that the fine-tuning of the universe does suggest a difficulty for a naturalistic explanation of our existence and is the best argument from his perspective for God. What does all this mean? Well, just as with the Magi, if we look at the stars, they still lead us to God. As the Apostle Paul, told us, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, Creation cannot help but bear witness to its creator. Theologian John Calvin, for instance, speaks of creation as the magnificent theater of God's wisdom. And in this case, such fine-tuning cannot help but to declare the great, 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 great wisdom of God. Again, creation tells us that God is. We might try to suppress this and deny this, but creation testifies to its creator. But even so, even so, the star only gets the Magi so far. The star gets them to Jerusalem. They need scripture to get the rest of the way. The star tells them that God is, but they need scripture to find out who God is. While Balaam fights against the words of God, the Magi search the scriptures to find out where the Christ will be born. They see the word of God as the blessing that it properly is. Unlike Balaam, they don't see it as a curse. And so consulting the chief priests and the scribes, they find out that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew quotes a combination of, of Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2, giving us these words. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Take note how the magi here connect scripture and creation. God is the creator of the world, and God is the author of Scripture. Both of these works stand in perfect harmony with one another. If they seem to be at odds, the problem is not with them. The problem is with our understanding or interpretation of them. We need both creation and Scripture to rightly seek the Lord. 
The Magi have creation, and this leads them to Scripture. Again, creation tells them that God is. It takes them to Jerusalem. But they need Scripture to know who God is, this child in the town of Bethlehem. In searching for Christ, they bring creation and Scripture together. We must do the same. But here's the thing. As the church, we often separate the two. That is, we we do the very same thing that we see the scribes and the chief priests doing in this passage. Wondrous things are happening around them. The long-promised Christ is rumored to be born. God's great gift of salvation may right now be appearing to his people, but the religious leaders don't seem to care. They don't do anything. They don't even go out to Bethlehem to search it out. Think about that. They seem to be living in two worlds. There's the world of the Bible, and then there's the world of real life. And never the twain shall meet. There's the world that we read about in Scripture in which God acts mightily in history. And then there's the real world. That disenchanted world that we live in day in and day out, where people like Herod do whatever they want, and the best we can do is either get on his good side or keep our head down. God works in one of those worlds, the world of the Bible, but not in the other world, the world of real life. Do we live like this? Do we separate the world of the Bible from the world in which we actually live? Do we get so lost in our everyday rhythms, good rhythms, but do we get so lost in them that we forget that God acts in history? To begin with, do we take a similar kind of posture or disposition to the coming of Christ? By their actions, the religious leaders, they demonstrate that they don't really expect or anticipate Christ's first coming. Again, they do nothing about it. And do we have a similar posture towards Christ's second coming? God promised that Christ will come, but the scribes didn't really act as if this would be a historical reality. God has promised that Christ will come again. And so do we wake up every morning thinking, yes, today may very well be the day that Christ returns. Christ may return in thousands of years from now, and we should live with many, many, many future generations in mind. But Christ may also return today. Do you see each day charged with that meaning and charged with that possibility? If not, ask yourself if, functionally speaking, you actually believe in Christ's return as more of a storybook event, something that relates to a kind of time beyond time, and not the actual history that we live in, the actual history with the everyday realities of commute and laundry and dishes and crying children and email and office deadlines and grocery lists and mowing the lawn. Do you believe that you live in a world where great and wonderful things have happened and will happen again. This also has to do with the acts of God more broadly. A few days ago at the closing of 2023 and in anticipation of 2024, theologian Peter Lightheart wrote these words for the church. 
This is, a, this is another, it's a bit of a long quote, but it's a good one. Lightheart reminds us of this. History's shape and trajectory is determined by the promises of God. That's reality, and it stimulates an expansive, imaginative realism. So don't accept the limits of what you think you see. Walk by faith in the promises of God, not by sight. Expect God to toss mountains into the sea. Expect to trample Satan underfoot. Don't focus on the apparent meagerness of the resources at hand, but on the infinite treasury of God. The things God gives are not in short supply. We lack nothing. In our Father's kingdom, there is no scarcity, no shortage. Defy the feeling that you're tiny, so that you are tiny and your church, your gifts, and your achievements are pathetic. Instead, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. If we don't believe this, we are not relating Scripture and creation like the Magi did. Instead, we're separating the two like the religious leaders did, who blew off investigating the birth of the Messiah. Let us pray for and expect God to do great things right here, right now, in our history. I quoted earlier from Justin Brierley's book, The The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And the underlying thesis of this book is that we are actually well-positioned in the West for revival. In fact, God may very well be sowing just these seeds in our actual history right here, right now. Briarly writes this, and again, I apologize, I've got longer quotes here than usual, but, but these writers are saying things much better than I could. Briarly says this about our modern moment. In the past several years, the conversations have changed in tone and substance quite dramatically. The bombastic debates between militant atheists and Christian apologists have been far less frequent. In their place have come increasing numbers of secular thinkers who are far more open to the cultural and social value of Christianity, even if they are not believers themselves. Most significantly, as the influence of new atheism has waned, a variety of secular thinkers have been stepping forward to ask new questions about the value of religion and where the West is heading in the absence of the Christian story. Many even seem to harbor a wishful desire for Christianity to be true. Friends, Let us believe that God works mightily in this world because this world is the world of the Bible. And yes, let us pray, let us hope, let us anticipate revival. Let us work toward that. Let us do so in our neighborhood, in our communities, in our cities, in our church, in our careers, in all of the aspects in which we live and move and have our being in this world. Because we cannot live in a world without meaning. We cannot continue as a people to live in contradiction. For instance, uh, philosopher Charles Taylor, he, he points this out. He says, our ethics have never been more exacting and more stringent. And just look at the, at, at, at the media that we see in, 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 in uh, the rhetoric we see in the media. It's often very harsh, very unforgiving. <clears throat> but Taylor also points out that never before have we been so unable to actually base our ethics in anything at all. 
If the only reason that we are here is because our ancestors got the best of other creatures by the strong eating the weak, then where in the world would we get an ethic of serving the other, especially the needy and the marginalized in our midst? This ethic would cut against the very thing that got us here. This ethic would be anti-human. Quite literally, this ethic would be inhumane. We cannot live in a world without story or meaning or ethics or significance. And perhaps the chaos of our modern moment, in this chaos, we are starting to realize this. Sleeper, awake. Open your eyes to the fine-tuning of the universe and your own yearnings and intuitions. Just like the Magi, let creation, both the universe and your own hearts, tell us that God is. C.S. Lewis writes this, Remember your fairy tales. Spells, spells. Sorry, the Indiana accent comes out sometimes. Let me, let me start that over. <clears throat> Remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. The Magi are not sorcerers who cast evil enchantments upon us. They are wise men who break the enchantment that makes us sleepwalk through this life. They wake us up to the wonder of God in his world. This world right here, right now, is the one in which God exists and acts. And so, it is a world that is more wonderful and exciting and enchanting than we so often give it credit for. Wonderful things have happened. Wonderful things are happening. Wonderful things will happen again. Let the wonder the wonder of this world. Let it lead us to Jerusalem and let scripture lead us to Bethlehem. And this brings us to our second and final point, <clears throat> the God who saves. Like I mentioned before, in addition to Balaam, there, there's at least one more Old Testament account that helps us better understand what's happening in Matthew 2. The Septuagint is, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and in the Greek book of Daniel, we do find the Greek term magi, magoi, the term that we find here in Matthew 2. In Daniel, the magi are the advisors to the king of Babylon, and in that context, they are probably magicians, astrologers, and or enchanters. As one commentator writes of the Old Testament magi, these magi in Babylon, they were Daniel's enemies, whom Daniel's narrative portray in a negative light as selfish, incompetent, and brutal pagans. And here, the context of Babylon is very, very, very important. Because in Isaiah 39, King Hezekiah, the king of Judah, he shows all of the treasures of Judah to official visitors from Babylon. However, this action greatly displeases the Lord, and the prophet Isaiah tells Hezekiah that the Babylonians themselves will carry off these treasures. And at least some of the treasures that they will take will be treasures from the temple of the Lord. We see this because in Daniel 5, we find the golden vessels and cups from the temple 
They're used for irreverent and lavish feasting in Babylon. These treasures have been taken from the temple to Babylon, and these magi have proved no better than Balaam. They are self-seeking, irreverent, and care only for their own comfort and money and status. How does this relate to the Magi of Matthew 2? The Magi of Matthew 2, they do not take treasures from God, but they bring treasures to God. The Christian tradition has long understood Matthew 2 as the fulfillment of Isaiah 60, verse 6. Speaking of the nations, the Lord says this through Isaiah. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. New Testament scholar Patrick Schreiner, he he gives us an insightful reading of the way that Matthew understands this fulfillment in connection with the wayward magi of Babylon. Schreiner writes, Matthew may be indicating that the gifts the magi bring are the true homecoming of Jerusalem's treasure from exile. Thus, with the coming of the magi, the treasures of the temple are returning. I believe Schreiner's suggestion is absolutely right, and I think that we can take it even further when we think about what the temple is. The temple is the place where God and humanity meet. And now Christ, the greater temple, who is both God and humanity, united in perfect personal union, now he has arrived. The Magi don't just bring treasures back to the temple that was built by Solomon. They bring them to the greater temple, to Christ himself, the temple to whom the temple of Solomon always pointed. These Magi undo the evil works of self-interest and sorcery that we see from the Old Testament Magi. Again, to paraphrase the words of Gandalf, We might imagine the Magi of Matthew 2 saying, Indeed, we are the Babylonian Magi, one might almost say. The Babylonian Magi, as they should have been. Again, the star tells the Magi that God is, in Scripture tells them who God is. And so, who is this God found in Bethlehem? Again, God is Christ, the temple. He is the meeting place between God and humanity. But but what exactly does that mean? All creation tells us that God is the great and the wise creator. But only scripture tells us that God is also our great and gracious savior. What is the temple? Well, it's the place where God is worshipped as God, as the great and mighty and wise creator of all things. But it's also the place where God is worshipped as Savior. At the temple, sacrifices were offered on behalf of the people. Animals were killed and sacrificed on behalf of the people. The sacrificial animals took upon themselves the punishment that the people of God deserved for their failure to love God as God and to love neighbor as neighbor. And because of these sacrifices, a sinful people could enter into the presence of a holy God. And so what was the foundation of the temple? It was forgiveness. It was mercy. And this is key because who God is, is a merciful God. 
Friends, we absolutely need a merciful God. In his book, Briarly, he, he also describes an awakening of the English author and teacher Francis Spufford, which helped lead Spufford on his journey from atheism to Christianity. Spufford recalls sitting down to a cappuccino after having a really rough argument with his wife. And just then, a clarinet concerto by Mozart, it started playing as he sat with his coffee. And Spufford writes this of the music. It offers a strong, absolutely calm rejoicing, but it does not pretend there is no sorrow in the world. In particular, what struck Spufford powerfully about the piece was its sense of mercy. He writes this, I had heard it lots of times, but this time it felt like news to me. It said, everything you fear is true, and yet, and yet, everything you have done wrong, you have really done wrong. And yet, and yet, the world is wider than you fear it is, wider than the repeating rigmaroles in your mind, and it has this in it, as truly as it contains your unhappiness. The beauty and the order and the truth of the music, it began to show Spufford that God is. But it also pointed to even more. Yes, the world is full of fears, Most basically, God exists, and that means that we must live as creatures of our Creator. But we all know that we have not. If God exists, yes, this is a wonderful truth, an exceedingly wonderful truth. But there's also a sense in which this is terrifying. We all know that we have really done wrong. We know this. We, like Balaam, have put our self-interest above others and over the instruction of God. We, like the Magi of Babylon, we've schemed against others like they schemed against Daniel. Each of us has tried to push others out in elevation of ourselves. We, like the Babylonian Magi, have taken what is not ours. We, too, have taken the treasures of the temple, the treasures of God, the treasures of our resources, our minds and bodies, our words, our careers, our relationships, and dedicated them to our own wishes rather than the worship of God. We, like the religious leaders of Jerusalem, have yawned at the word of God as quaint and naive and unimportant for our actual lives and instead have sought the approval of some Herod who we think has much more to offer than God. And yet, and yet, the world is wider even than all of this. Again, in Spuffer's words, everything you fear is true, and yet, and yet, everything you have done wrong, you have really done wrong, and yet, and yet, the world is wider than you fear it is. And it has this in it. And what is the this here? Mercy. The world has more than fear and wrongdoing. The world has mercy. The world has this. The world is so big and so wide and so wonderful that it abounds with mercy. The world is so big that who God is, is Jesus Christ. 
Again, he is the true temple, the true meeting place of God and humanity. Again, unlike the Magi of Babylon who steal from the temple of God, the Magi of Matthew 2 bring their treasures to the temple, the true temple, Christ Jesus. What do they bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As theologian Thomas Wynandy points out, the Christian tradition has long associated the gold as the recognition of the kingship of Christ and frankincense with the worship of Christ with the incense that rises up from the altar. But the myrrh, the myrrh signifies something else, something, something different. The Christian tradition has long understood the myrrh as signifying the anointing of Jesus' body for death and for burial. The myrrh represents the death of this child. Recall the prophecy that the Magi are now fulfilling, that prophecy from Isaiah 60, verse 6. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. What do we find here? We find the mention of gold and frankincense, but we don't find any mention of the myrrh, or at least we don't find explicit mention of the myrrh. We're told that what is brought is gold and frankincense and good news. The Magi shall bring gold and frankincense and most importantly, good news, the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God. In bringing the myrrh, they are bringing the gospel. Isaiah 60 and Matthew 2, they push us to pair the good news with the myrrh. What does this mean? This child is God become human. This child is God become human to live the perfect life of love to God and to neighbor in our place. This child is God become human to die the death that we deserve in our place, just like all of those Old Testament sacrifices. This child is the God who is merciful. This child is the God who loves us so much and so deeply that he gives us the perfect human life as a gift and takes upon himself the death that we alone have merited. This child is the true temple. This child, Jesus Christ, is who God is. Again, the myrrh represents the child's coming death. To bring myrrh to Christ is to praise his death. To bring myrrh to Christ is to confess that you, not he, deserves the death and the burial that he will undergo. To bring myrrh to Christ is not only to praise God, but to repent before him with the sure and certain hope of forgiveness. To bring myrrh to Christ is to acknowledge that the world is so wide and so wonderful that it is built upon abounding mercy. The star... It shows us that God is. God exists. This is a wonderful truth. But again, this can also be a terrifying truth because we know that we have all done wrong. But the myrrh, it shows us who God is. God is the merciful Savior. He offers forgiveness and he beckons us to himself. And so we, like the Magi, must fall down before Christ in worship and offer him our myrrh. When we bring myrrh to Christ, we acknowledge his death on our behalf. We repent and rejoice in the mercy of God, confident in his forgiveness. 
Our murder is our faith. It is our trust in the gospel that our great golden king, who alone deserves to be worshipped, to be worshipped with the rising of frankincense, the frankincense of our praise, he has died for us. He has been anointed for burial by the myrrh of our confession and repentance. To bring myrrh, the myrrh of faith, is not so much to make an offering to Christ as much as it is to receive Christ as our own offering. To anoint Christ for death is to cling to his death as our only hope and salvation. In bringing the myrrh of faith, we make Christ's perfect human life our own. And when we place our faith in Christ, when we bring our myrrh before him, we hear Christ in his humanity say to us, Indeed, I am you, one might say, you as you should have been, and indeed, you as you will one day be. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the gift of Christ. We thank you that you are both the great and mighty and wise creator and also the merciful and gracious Savior. Thank you, Lord, that you have declared this in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.